0: Welcome back, everybody. This is I Eat Movies, number 21. I'm, of course, your co-host, Mike, joined by my good pal, Dino. How goes it, bud?
1: It goes pretty good, sir. Welcome back to you, as it were. Welcome oh, back. Uh, we're a little behind schedule, folks. Uh, the, the the outcry was massive. The apologies have been intense. I'm so sorry. But we are back. Um, Yes. And only uh, been we... about
0: a month and uh, an onstage bitch slap since our last <laughs> episode. So, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I'm,
1: I'm, I'm 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 sick about that. But anyway, yeah. that's another story.
0: you know, that's that that is a whole other can of worms. But yeah, that just goes to show you what happens when uh, we 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 fall just ever so slightly off of our I eat movies recording schedule. But uh, I digress. We are back and it's it's a good feeling. It's good to be here again with you.
1: It's good to be awash in memes about, uh, current events, uh, as <laughs> right. it were, but yeah, you've been, uh, you've been quite busy yourself movie wise. What are you, where are you been?
0: I have been a little busy. Yeah, this, uh, at least at the time of this recording, um, the past weekend, um, myself and a bunch of our mutual, uh, film fanatic friends, uh, were up in Syracuse, New York for the Salt City Horror Festival, um, it was actually a two-day event, um, the Friday night was a Kung Fu Festival, uh, Consisting of four films on 35mm and um, our friends uh, Chris Pajali and Grady Hendricks were in attendance uh, signing their new book, um, mm-hmm. These Fists Break Bricks. Excellent stuff. Chris is always a good friend. Asked us, uh, asked me specifically, how's the podcast going? Very good. I told him. Chris,
1: them. Chris is a mensch, and Chris is also basically grew up in. So he did basically. He grew up in Syracuse. He's a Syracuse guy. Yeah, he guy, was. Yeah, so.
0: he, He's he pretty was cool. Telling us, yeah, he was telling us all the hot spots that used to be there and whatnot. We actually, uh, on the day that we were leaving, uh, we wandered into one of. Um, a used bookstore that Chris and his sister apparently used to work at when they were teenagers, so wow. that was cool. Um, but yeah, that Friday, it was uh, four films, uh, Kung Fu films uh, consisting of uh, No Retreat, No Surrender, Revenge of the Ninja, great canon films, uh, among others. And then on Saturday was the Horror Film Festival, which was uh, nine films on 35mm. um, whole spatter of things uh, like Carrie, um, Ilsa She Wolf of the uh, All ISS. right, hold on,
1: hold on, hold on, hold on. I I know, I know what they were playing Mm -hmm. and I looked at this list Yeah, and I, 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 to me, and I know to you, Syracuse, New York is not that far, but it's a, it's a several hour ride and it is the set. It is central New York. It is North of the Finger Lakes. If you're a a person who understands geography, uh, unlike the majority of people in New York city. Um, (laughs) And uh, but I looked at some of those movies and I'm like, he didn't go there to see a 35-millimeter version of Guru the Mad Monk. What did you go there to see?
0: <laughs> well, it, yes, funny you should mention Guru. You didn't go didn't- there to see 35-millimeter version
1: of Vampire Hookers. And I like well, Vampire you... Hookers, and full disclosure, the company I work
0: for put out Vampire Hookers, but go on. Yes, and I did, yeah, well, uh, Vampire Hookers <laughs> was definitely a treat. I hadn't seen it in quite some time, and Guru, to answer your question, was not one that I rushed up there to see on 35, okay. because I had seen it on 35 millimeter already. Oh, that's right. Uh, but and really, and... The, the big ones um, were surprisingly carry, because the only other time that I had an opportunity to see that on 35 millimeter was at exhumed films one of their many great uh 24-hour horror and by the time that played uh it was pretty late in the run uh and i was really delirious and in, in and out so i um in and out of sleep so i really was happy to get another opportunity at seeing it so mm. that was a blast um so that one was definitely one of the major ones um really one of the the big titles was actually Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, which was brought uh, courtesy uh, of our buddy uh, Brian Darwis. Um, he brought oh, his right. prints. Yeah, he brought his print up there, which was also,
1: great. Also Death Screams was, I assume, his print. Yeah, right?
0: also Death Screams, which I did not make it uh, to. Uh, Vampire Hookers was the second to last film, and that was the last one that I... Um, we probably could have stayed for Death Screams. I, I had the energy to do it, but um, you know, by that point we just kind of felt like we had had our fill. But yeah, Ilsa, and um, the first film that opened the marathon was Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. It was meant to be the 1931 version, but apparently that uh, print had trouble getting to them. I think believe it was stuck in Tennessee. Um, so Warner Brothers sent out the Spencer Tracy version, which was an equal treat because I hadn't seen that one, and that was a version that I was um. Pretty awesome, and, and surprisingly enough, uh, just coming home from this week, and Warner Archive announced uh, not only the Spencer Tracy version, but the thirty-one mm. version, um, which is. Uh, both going to be coming to blu-ray uh soon which is great i believe the spencer tracy one actually is coming out in may so that was <laughs> kind of awesome like instant gratification that i can own a really nice blu-ray of that after seeing it on uh, a print of it so uh yeah so all what in all, it was, what was awesome the movie weekend. what was the movie what was the big one what was the one that oh ilsa it was definitely ilsa it ilsa definitely was ilsa. the big one because that's such a such a rare one along with carrie but it really was Do- uh jekyll and Hyde too and it was it was funny when i was looking over um the list of the films i kind of i guess i was just glancing very quickly every time i looked at the list so i went um, almost under the assumption that it was the spencer tracy one only to realize the week of the show that it was the 1931 version which i was fine with because i hadn't seen that one either so the fact that like there was a little snafu the day before and it reverted to being the spencer tracy one i was like oh that's what I kinda of wanted anyway, so it all sort of worked out. That's nice. It's nice when that happens. Yeah. Uh very yeah, I, I could see it for I, I you know, I
1: I for some reason I thought carry on a print of carry was not that rare. Like I, I for some reason I I thought that plays no. relatively commonly. But I yeah, don't know for it, sure.
0: It, yeah, you no, it's it's, it's certainly not rare. I guess, you know, and it, there's have been other opportunities to catch it on thirty-five since my um My first time, but uh, I just kept missing those ones. So it just kind of worked out that it was, you know, it was kind of nestled into a marathon like this. So it it was really nice to finally see it. Um, So, yeah, I I had a blast. I'm a a big Stephen King fan. So seeing that was awesome. I believe that was Brian's print, too, um, Mm. if I'm not mistaken. You just really
1: you're just really trying to get Brian in trouble. I get it.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to get him in trouble. Yeah, that's what exactly what it is. But yeah, ma- major compliments uh to that show, you know. That's Brian to... that's
1: our friend Brian Herskovitz, by the way. That's that's who we're talking
0: about. <laughs> that's that's correct. That's that's yeah. his legal name. Yes. But that that was great. Uh, you know, good good company, good films, good times. Had all around. But yeah, then I just kind of deliriously made my way home uh and then just, you know, we've been uh we've been hustling this week, working and then here we are finally back in uh, our I Eat Movies Hot spot um to kind of you know once again repay the favor to you my friend uh this is another one of our first time installments uh and as we kind of get down to the bottom of this season it is your turn sir for me to recommend a film to you is that right it
1: is it is um i just want to quickly say that i've had a a bumpy couple of days um yeah you have well i mean let you know I, i could talk about you know I could talk about physical, uh, personal, personal stuff or what have you. It's not really that as much as, uh, man, I have, I have seen a few movies that really kind of hurt me the past couple of days. Uh, (laughs) Physically, emotionally. Yeah. Well, it just, it didn't, it didn't, um, it didn't, uh, I'm not including the movie we're picking today, but I just, uh, uh, I have had such, well, okay. First of all, I just told you about, um, I just watched uh, shatter, AKA Mr. Shatter, the Stuart Whitman movie, the, uh, the Hammer Films uh, – um, Hammer Films-Shaw yeah. Brothers uh, collaboration that ended the uh, the partnership of those two studios for good reason, which my friend James and I kind of tried to suffer through. A movie that he saw when he was like nine or ten years old, uh, probably dubbed into Spanish on Peruvian TV. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'd like to see that again. And, uh, and, and it was uh, – I like to think I can watch a lot of stuff and deal with a lot of stuff and, you know, maybe get inebriated and laugh my way through something. But it was it was a slog. And then I followed it up with another one. And, you know, one of my favorite things uh, I want to I, I want to say, um, I'm very excited about once again, <laughs> say something about work. Uh, very, I'm very excited about the uh, the OCN partner labels, especially. um these are partner labels, of OCN Distribution, uh, Connected to Vinegar Syndrome, uh, especially Canadian International Pictures. Uh, yes. I have not yet seen their new one, which is a compilation of French-Canadian movies, the new French the, – the the other French New Wave. But I did watch um, The Ernie Game, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I am a big fan um, – I am a big fan of uh, Canadian tax shelter movies, and I have had a really good track record with them. And that kind of changed the other day uh, with a movie that's either known (laughs) as Mr. Patman or Crossover. There are two reviews of this. See, by the way, folks, uh, Mike is a terrible influence because (laughs) when we started, I really had no tolerance for Letterboxd. And now I'm going to quote to you how many reviews there are on Letterboxd for this fucking movie. Um, (laughs) There are two reviews of it, and one of them is my dad and his mustache were in this movie, effectively. It's uh, the two, Uh like, one-line reviews. Um, So this is a John Gillerman film who has been covered here on I Eat Movies. Mm -hmm um and apparently this movie was supposed to be directed by John Houston that changed someone else filled in and i just don't know what the hell happened it's a james coburn movie where he plays a uh, night an, a, a, a night shift nurse at a mental ward who is slipping emotionally and mentally himself and um intriguing it's not it sounds good <laughs> Uh, it sounds good and you know i try really hard despite my 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 clear role here as the as the cranky critical guy of the two of us i try really hard not to be negative about this stuff but this one was like a real head scratcher this was really like the wow they had Ten pounds of drama, and they put it in a three-pound bag. Like, they, they, it just—it it didn't work. It, it didn't work, and it's a shame because I can, James Coburn. I'd like to think is a guy I could watch like tying his shoelaces and still enjoy. Sure. it. but um, yeah, and uh, well, all right, I. <laughs> Let's uh, let's just say I I, I like uh, I like the 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 Mike McPadden saying he'll never tell anybody not to see a movie. I'll never tell you not to see Shatter. I'll never tell you not to see Crossover. But there's a moment in this movie where James Coburn um dramatically uh, kills his beloved cat, oh, and uh, I am not squeamish about this stuff. But it's one of those like this did nothing for the story it just happens and yeah. it's very i understand it's supposed to have some dramatic value and i'm going off on the wrong movie right now but man <laughs> i'm just like i i what did i you know what did i i, I mentioned to a, a a mutual friend of ours like i i i'm so traumatized by this movie not because you know this is a terrible thing but like uh, to, not because like an actual idea of violence towards an animal is terrible of course in real life it is in movies it's not quite the same because they're fake, but nevertheless, I'm traumatized. Because I was like, "Wait, did I miss something? Was there something like? Right. <laughs> you, can I blame myself for something that went? No, it's just right. It's just uh, it's not a good movie. It was a bad experience, and I need to go back to like, need <laughs> to watch like the Silent <laughs> Partner or something, or one yeah. of the great, the many, many, many great Canadian tax shelter movies. Shit, I could watch Porkies. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, I wouldn't say that Porky's is great. It's good, but um. Yeah. So I'm kind of in a I kind of came to this uh, movie that we're about to cover from a place of like (laughs) I'm healing from certain wounds (laughs) as much as I don't like want to take movies too seriously. I had some I had some two real speed bumps coming up. Yes. But yes, what Brian Brian. what uh, what Mike was leading towards is that we are going to one of our installments uh, of uh, the first time series. Season 2 of I Eat Movies, this is now Dino's first time, and it's my first time with Jack the Bear. I was 12. My brother was three. Hi boys and girls, are you
0: here for kids
1: stuff? And dad
0: was somewhere in between.
1: For a father on his own. Oh, Cookie Monster! Oh, Cookie Monster! With two kids to raise. One bag, one, one bag. My dad had a tradition <laughs> of being untraditional. Kick a tree. Twick a tweet. A remarkable way <laughs> of doing the unexpected. Mr.
0: Larry, what's the strange power you have over our children?
1: I'm the perfect monster. And a knack for being totally irresponsible. I didn't know if you plan on being bozo the clown your whole life. Who's the father and who's the son here? I don't know. You could say we were a family like no other. I miss Mommy. I miss her so much. I <laughs> On a street like no other. Where's Dolan? He's gone. Where? I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Mr. Larry, but we believe your son is missing. And though nothing happened quite the way we expected. You touch my son and I'll kill you, you hear me? Daddy! Jackie! When the chips were down... You have to trust me! Why? Because
0: I can't lose my kids. He was the best dad two kids ever had. We're gonna be alright. No, we're not! Nothing's alright! what examples we set for the boys
1: i was planning to talk on that very subject right
0: after the game
1: jack the bear
0: indeed 1993's jack the bear so uh speaking of a film where things just happen (laughs) um jack the bear is an interesting one uh especially when i came of age um as a as a wee lad um there were coming of age films that were emerging um specifically in the early 90s that seemed very different um from the you know mid early to mid 80s um or even the 70s for that rather um and the you know a lot of the films that i was growing up on at this time were things like 1991's curly sue uh john hughes's very underrated um final directorial uh, film that deals with a father and his daughter uh, being homeless. It's sort of like a comedy drama, but, uh, you know, it's dealing with a very heavy subject such as homelessness. Uh, Another film, uh, My Girl, um, that deals with um, a girl living in the 1960s raised by her father, who is an undertaker and her her mother has passed away, and she's trying to navigate in a world uh, with her best friend, who is allergic to everything, and and just kind of growing up around dead people constantly. Um, another one that my sister and I grew up really loving was 1992's Radio Flyer, uh, again, mm. set in, a, in and around the 1960s about two brothers um, living and, you know, having this imagination um, that they use to kind of deal with the fact that they have a really abusive alcoholic father. Um, so you kind of see where I'm getting at. There's these coming-of-age films um, that deal with these younger kids confronted with these really stark and sometimes bleak. Real-world scenarios and how they deal with them. So they're not exactly—I wouldn't go so far to call them heartwarming, but a lot of them are very special and very unique in their own right. And
1: Jack, I, the, I want to throw something in here, though. The, the other context. Okay. And so, remember, folks, uh, if if you're actually paying attention to who the, who the hell we are, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we are 10 years apart. So in 1993, I was, I was in high school and I was aware of these movies and I knew, definitely knew people who liked these movies. But I was definitely not interested in a lot of this stuff. I was somewhere mm-hmm. off like, I don't know, playing with punk rock and hardcore and ska music and all this other stuff. And um, movie-wise, I wasn't seeing too much stuff at this time time I don't think but it certainly wasn't things that seemed like child movies but I want to just just to flesh out what you're saying like I understand Please. I understand that you know given our given our standard age difference of 10 years that these are important movies but they're also it has to be said that they're also in this time frame of a very very developed um 90s version of the past Yes. In the early 90s, the fixation on the 60s, the JFK, the Doors, all the Oliver Stone movies. And they are a little bit more complicated, but, you know, I think of this period of time, uh, in 60s and 70s, you know, um, the more I go back to a movie I did love for this period of time, Days of Confused, the more I'm like, this is a 90s movie. And it's kind of more about the 90s than it is about the 70s, even though it's trying to be. So there's a very developed, very kind of standard way of looking at the past at this point that yeah. we could arguably say kind of started – well, you – let me throw this at you. Tell me what you think. Kind of started with like Stand By Me in, the, in 86 and Absolutely. then accelerated through the wonder years. Yes. Especially using the voiceover, sometimes older and we'll get to this. This is a, this is this is an issue here. Sometimes the older perspective in hindsight and sometimes um, a contemporary voiceover. But the voiceover telling a story involving a coming yes. of age tale was really a well. I won't say it was well worn, but it was a well used device at this time. Let's say. Yeah.
0: You know, Oh no, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that you certainly hit the nail on the head with those examples. I mean, Stand By Me was definitely, um, the forefather of those. And then right, um, leading almost exactly to the massive success that was The Wonder Years. And and I I always use this as sort of like um, explaining it like The Wonder Years effect. This is something that leads uh, directly into something, you know, such as 1993's The Sandlot, which is yeah. another 60s-based film about local kids playing baseball um, at a local, you know, field and whatnot and the same use of narration of the of a character looking back in hindsight at their youth and whatnot so yeah it's very much totally totally with those two it, it just kind of it became a formula so to speak but um yeah it it's interesting because that that you know in hindsight I, I suppose now you can look at that and be like that was a movie from my childhood and yes that was in the 90s but that was the closest um and really first introductions that we ever had to something like the 60s. That is how Mm. I, you know, came to understand what the 60s was and what it sort of represented to a lot of people. And of course that, you know, that comes through the filmmakers that were making them too. I mean, obviously the filmmakers, these were very personal films for them. So they were telling them almost, you know, sort of autobiographic, you know, they, they weren't, necessarily characters in the film but they were certainly littering you know their own personal experiences and lives um you know weaving them through these characters so that's why i always take a lot from these movies because you definitely feel a very personal touch attached to them although these sort of formulaic nods through you know from the wonder years and things like stand by me are there but um it's very different. I mean these films um like like we said they you know they I think they're uh, it's fair to say that they're dealing with a little bit heavier co- um content than some of the other ones uh, you know f- from the 80s that were definitely a little bit more livelier and more animated. But there was something about these films that although they dealt with heavier subjects I I suppose that's probably what struck the chord with the ones that really gravitated them like myself and my sister when we were growing up but yeah they they you know I guess in hindsight I guess it's it's it feels peculiar that so many of these films were made and produced because it's like every single one of these none of them would be produced now let alone by a major studio and marketed to Um, right this demographic so it 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 it, it, they're special for two reasons now from obviously a nostalgic point of view but also from a uh, a point of view that like these are just films that certainly don't get made anymore unless you know you're an indie, indie
1: studio i agree with that to a point because remember that like again my age the age difference like you can contrast them with '80s movies, but you have to contrast them with the right '80s movies. I feel you have sure. to look at, at '80s teen dramas, especially the early ones. Like yeah. this period of '90s films, it's very big budget. These movies made a lot of money. They're very post-Spielberg. They're yes. very like, and and I, for me, you know, I think I've said before, I got into like '70s cult cinema and especially black action movies towards the middle and end of the nineties. Like I was pushing it back whether I knew it or not against this stuff because it felt kind of formula, but very, very airbrushed for lack of a letter, uh, a better term. Like there's uh-huh. a lot of it where like, I'm like, it's a little too maudlin and it's fast. It's interesting to me to think about like the movie we're going to talk about tonight, Jack, Jack, the bear, which I promise we'll get to one of these days. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, you know, it, the director of it was also a major television producer for at least one one TV series that I really loved, which is yeah. thirty, which was thirty something, um, and those spoke to me a few years before. I think at this period of time, despite like all the other stuff I was into, and you know, just the young prick I was at this period of time, being in high school, getting you know, whatever, getting in trouble, getting do whatever. Um, the formula became a little bit cloying to me. So, like mm-hmm. a movie like my girl, and I like I'm not taking I, of course, I'm not trying to take anything away from your experience with it, but sure. for me at the time, a movie like My Girl, it was it was a little saccharine. It was mm-hmm. a little bit too much. It was a little too like I wanted movies to be a little bit more raw and a little bit more stripped down. I, I actually wanted certain amount of 80s or 70s, early 80s or 70s texture to movies, whether I knew w- what I was looking for or not, you know, mm-hmm. like when – this is not. This is basically around this time that I saw Shaft for the first time, Perfect. and I was already like off and running uh, with my purloined uh, seven, with my purloined neighbors, uh, um, um, uh, thrown away playboys and penthouses yeah. uh, from the 70s. I was already like kind of fixated on like this 70s thing that seemed much more vivid and a lot less, um, I don't know, manufactured. I guess is yeah. the word it's a lot less you know brushed and 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 so forth. A lot of these movies you're right they wouldn't be made today but there isn't an audience for them. There's an audience for these for you know for these coming of age movies and and they do you know to be fair these are very much a part of like the baby boomer type thing. Like yeah. this is the right time for the right age group to be looking back wistfully to a certain point of like okay the 90s are a time of change um they're not the '80s anymore, and the '70s are really distant. And this is that generation director-wise kind of reflecting back, right? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, it still just kind of throws me for a loop because, yeah, you're right. These were all produced by major studios. Um, many of them, I would say, a fair amount of them, not certainly not all, certainly not the film that we're talking about today, made huge dents at the box office. But even at the time, I'm like. Who are these really made for? You know mm. what I mean? Like, like you know, like they were targeted, you know, because obviously they're all um, starring uh, younger actors for perhaps first time actors and stuff. But they're all set in these time periods that don't necessarily correlate with the youth outside of their um their uh you, you know their relationship with something like the wonder years so it's very it, it's very puzzling to me that so many of these films were getting greenlit and approved but i guess you know uh, to your point it was just ha- it just happened to be something in the air it was the it was the right alignment of people at these places that were ready to greenlight these things and they i suppose there was just a passion for these things to get made but it 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 is very much interesting to me that so many of them were made in this three to four year window um Mm. that you know cover these times you know in the same era but you know it, it all everything seems uh it's like a circular motion of things where like, you know, these are all films about the past. And I know I've talked about this on the show before, but you know, we're, we're sort of living in that time period again now where we have a crop of filmmakers that are looking back, um, you know, on their own nostalgia, be it Tarantino with once upon a time in Hollywood or Edgar Wright, who is somebody who did not live through the sixties, but made a film like last night in Soho, a very nostalgia driven thing. And then, uh, um, you know, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast or Licorice Pizza or something, you know. So mm-hmm. there's there it's always been there in cinema where there's this temptation um, within filmmakers to kind of go back to their roots and their own nostalgia to explore stories that can be told. So I, I, I like them. I like them all. See, these ones, uh, the ones from my youth. Are special because I came of age watching them, so they'll sure, always have that. So, but it's just, it's always fascinating to me that there's just, you know, there's always a, a need to kind of, re, you know, re, um, resort back to our past for some of that magic that we, we had back then. So I, I'm always fascinated by that. So Oh, I well, I mean, I,
1: I, I totally, look, I, I totally agree. I've been interested in nostalgia since I was like 10 years old, but like, two just yeah. two other quick things before we get to the movie, uh, and I'll try to mm-hmm. make it brief. Um, a... I think it's hard for it's harder for us to understand now, but I think there was a palpable awareness. No one used the word millennium in the '90s uh, until the very late '90s. Uh, But I think it was a palpable understanding of the fact that we were in the last decade of a century and a millennium, and there is and, and there was definitely like the whole like let's reflect back and so forth and. And given the – given like the political climate of the time, you know, relative, um, relative prosperity and so forth, it would be pretty easy to kind of look back uh, you know, in, a, in a way that was very um, positivistic and, and, and so forth. But the wave – like the, the, the waves of nostalgia that really started happening in the 70s. Like, Mm -hmm. to me, this makes total sense. It's not maybe it's not an exact recipe, but the 50s had this whole obsession with the 70s, this whole generation remembering rock and roll and cruising and American graffiti in the 70s. And then the still obsession in the the 80s with, you know, with the 50s kind of continued. So it was kind Mm -hmm. of like a natural progression for that generation to be looking back because enough time had passed. And a lot of people didn't want to assess the 70s being a much kind of more um, a harder time to, you know, to kind of apply gloss to and and, uh, to create a mythology about a much more turbulent time compared to like the romance of the 60s and the baby boomers thinking about when they were, you know, kids and Woodstock, et cetera, et cetera. There was just enough time had passed where, again, the Oliver Stone type generation of directors could be looking back at the 60s and say now we want to attack it and it was right. very much with you know informed by um the spirit of the 1990s especially the early 90s
0: yeah absolutely um so yeah so the film that uh, i've selected to serve up for Dino, this season. Uh, at the time of this recording, we're going to be just passing um, its 29th anniversary. Uh, so, Jack the Bear, uh, it's based on a novel by Dan McCall, uh, an author who's written uh, several novels, uh, passed away about 10 years ago. Uh, he was also a college professor. And uh, Jack the Bear is um, a project, uh, interestingly enough, that has been, or at the time, had been in development since the late 70s with people like Jane Fonda involved at one point. Um, At one point, Bob Raffleson um, was considered to direct. He, of course, uh, behind such things as Head and Five Easy Pieces, and even Jack Nicholson was considered to star. So I didn't even know that much about that, just how long this um, this project had Kind of been percolating um within the industry. But when was um, when was the book originally written? I don't I don't have that uh name. 1974. Wow. Yeah, okay. so this goes back quite a ways, um, which is interesting to see you know have it come full circle, uh, you know, almost 30 years later. Um, but uh there it is. So Jack the Bear uh, stars Danny DeVito as John Leary, and um he's a widower. Um, Raising two sons uh, in Oakland, California, circa 1972. Uh, Danny DeVito's character, uh, you know, he's lost his wife. Uh, The film picks up where he is um, a year removed from the loss of his wife. Like I said, he's raising, uh, raising his two sons. Um, Jack Leary, the oldest, uh, played by Roger J. Steinmiller Jr., um, who a year or two years before Jack the Bear was in a film called Bingo that I remember also from my childhood. Uh, and then his youngest son, Dylan, who's played by Miko Hughes, um, an actor who I was once uh, confused with being his cousin at a film convention. So I by like several, By several people, I was like, Nope, I'm not. I, really. think, I, I think I think we have to run with that. We're gonna have to run with that. I'm Miko yeah. Hughes's cousin. Um, I, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot. we gonna T-shirt that says that I'm yeah. Miko Hughes's cousin, <laughs> we'll
1: and sure we're gonna have way. to find someone who who knows who that. Well, compared to Stein Steinmiller,
0: Miko Hughes has had a big film career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, dating back to 89 and Pet Cemetery, where he played Gage. Uh, he was in Ivan Reitman's Kindergarten Cop as the kid who says boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. Uh, he was in Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Apollo 13, Spawn, was in, you know, countless episodes of Full House. So, yeah, Miko Hughes is certainly, especially by child actor standards, he's a face that a lot of people of this generation know and remember. Um, so Danny DeVito is trying to raise his two sons, and he is is constantly being fired from television stations as he is a TV host. Uh, and he's kind of made his way into Oakland, California, where he is now the the horror movie host, um, really ingeniously uh, known as Al Gorey, which I think is hilarious. I mean, um, how, how much more obviously 90s do you want than that? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but also, hey,
1: look, they just moved from Syracuse presumably yep. coming straight from the horror convention obviously <laughs> no, actually no that's one of the that's one of the not so slight um points in this and I, I I'll, I'll let you get back to the synopsis but uh one of the not so slight things in the in this movie where um they're trying to show a transition or a change he was a kids show host in Syracuse yes. they moved to Oakland and
0: now he's a horror show host go on please yeah so it's uh you know it's in he, in this move that they're really trying to start anew and Danny DeVito is this really animated um very childlike father um we see him you know obviously being a goofball constantly cracking jokes he plays flashlight tag with his uh two sons in this house um he's really the the hit of this block amongst the the kids on the block uh constantly playing games with the neighborhood kids but deep down you know he he's grieving and he's struggling um with alcohol uh so it's a rough time for the family as everybody is still um very raw in this um and that alone would make this film um or this plot pretty sound um of a family really trying to you know kind of pick themselves back up after such a traumatic loss um of losing a wife and mother but then another element comes into jack the bear and this is what i meant when i uh talked about uh as this film being something where things just sort of happen, uh, located across the street on this block where seemingly kids are playing, uh, you know, from dusk till dawn and kid, you know, parents are always outside washing their cars. Um, there is a neighbor who is played by Gary Sinise, uh, who plays Norman Strick. And at this point in time, um, Saniisi was a relatively new actor. Uh, he had only done um, very brief roles, and uh, you know, the year before this, he played um, the role of George Milton in *Of Mice and Men*. Uh, and of course, everybody would have go on to know him a year later, uh, you know, infamously as Lieutenant Dan in *Forrest Gump*. Um, but yeah, I I did not really realize that Sinise's, um Career really started right around this time period, so he plays um, a handicapped neighbor uh, from across the street who, lo and behold, seems to be uh, a neo-Nazi.
1: No, wait, wait, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's, He—it's uh, not—that's not made clear quite yet. Not uh, quite yet, but be, there's to something. Be, to off. be fair,
0: to to yeah, be fair, to be to be fair, but yeah, he—he's just kind of known within the, you know by the neighborhood kids as sort of like. The the creep of the block,
1: yeah. He's uh, he's you, you basically know. he's kind of positioned early on as like the Boo Radley of the neighborhood because yeah. he likes to see, he likes <laughs> to perfect. sit. Yeah, well, that's the original. See, one of the things like I you might be getting a little ahead because like that's not made clear at all in the beginning. But he's a guy who like smashed his leg in a car accident, who likes to yes. sit outside with his big mean dog. And, uh, and, and every single day he washes his like totem car in the driveway that he can no longer, it doesn't have an engine in it, but it's like this figment of his past that he's totally attached to. And he is the scary guy in the neighborhood, uh, that all the kids, um, that all the kids are constantly like trying to figure out what his deal is. And they think he's going to kill them for no clear reason, other than the fact that they're kids. And he's a little confused. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't get, it doesn't really happen until like midway through the movie. And, yeah. and it's kind of like, I, you know, I didn't know how I
0: felt about this movie. I'm sorry. Yeah, did I just step no, on your synopsis? Yeah, okay. no, no, no. Because I think we're going in the same direction. Is like everything that I've explained up until this point about the synopsis is what it is. And this is very much a coming of age film. But then there's this, you know, what we're hinting at here is this, there's this curveball in this film that seems like it's plucked from an entirely different film and makes the film radically uneven. But that's not to say that there isn't good stuff in this film, because there is a lot of good stuff, um, you know, least of which uh, this being one of devito's most vulnerable performances and he's yeah. really he's incredibly terrific in this role um and and very much believable um in the role and i think how the family operates and how their chemistry with one another with one another the family dynamic is very believable in this film and you gravitate to them but yeah it, it is uh in and around this midway point in the film that the Sinise character. Um, who's kind of been built up just uh, amongst neighborhood lore as this creep, um, there, there's a there, you know, there it begins to take shape that he does kind of fit the bill as, you know, the personification of really um a living monster because that that's another thing that's kind of percolating within the themes of this film is the idea of monsters, uh, be they fictional, you know, or real life. Um, and we see both of those really in this film and how, um, the young characters perceive both of those two things, especially when they're confronted with the real thing right outside their doorstep. So, uh, you know, midway through this film, um, as, uh, the Steinmiller character, Jack, the eldest son is, you know, he's a, you know, he's a, Preteen. I believe he's like 12 or 13. And, you know, he's a new kid in school. Uh, You know, he's, you know, girls are just new onto his mind. And he Mm -hmm. has this really great dad, but he's also fully aware that his dad has a drinking problem. He's obviously still grieving. He himself is still grieving over the loss of his mother. Um, So there's a lot of things going on when the Sinise character approaches their doorstep one night trying to get donations for, um, a conservative politician.
1: <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, wait, wait, hold on. Here's the question.
0: Here's an the answer.
1: Happen, uh, good man. Uh, <laughs> does that happen before or after the, the, uh, uh, the neighbor shows up in the Halloween outfit? I think it happens after, right?
0: Before the neighbor shows up. Uh, well, no, yeah, the neighbor, the neighbor shows up. The neighbor's named Dexter. The, yeah, the neighbor, the neighbor shows up in the costume after this. It, it happens after. Okay, yeah, okay. that's how it happens uh, after because. Okay, so, so, com-
1: well, I, just before we set that up, I, I just sure. one of the things and I just watched this today and watched this basically one and a half times. And I wrote a lot of stuff in the column of my notes like I literally wrote at one point, "Is this maudlin?" Question mark. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think I agree with the idea that there's a a, a plot stapled into this from another movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. It's not a perfectly smooth narrative. Um, I think uh, Gene Siskel said he thought it needed more work, uh, the writing of it. But as much as this movie relies on a lot of what feels to me as conventions of the day um be it like the way it's photographed or the the just the tone of it or like it looks like the the exact same set from like uh the burbs or something yeah, <laughs> i'm not yeah, even totally. sure but um it, i think it's actually constructed in such a way that there's enough curveballs in it it does have that drift of like I'm a preteen kid, and we never know. We ne- We never know exactly what year it is. It turns out to be the early '70s, and you have yeah. to take a, a little bit of time. We never to figure out that you know what what that is. It turns out to be the early '70s. We never know exactly how old this kid is, right? And um, we never know necessarily. We know that the, it's a hindsight voiceover, but the awareness of the narrator is really confusing. But the but that's all that said. All that said, I actually think there's a case to be made for Jack the Bear that it does a bunch of unusual things, um, and some of them are kind of insane. What we're kind of dancing around is the fact that it looks like this char- this Gary Sinise character, uh, uh Norman Strick. Uh, yeah, I-, I love it. I love it when they use a you know a Germanic type, you know. uh, yeah. uh, uh, uh a word like, you know, like Max Schreck, uh, a Germanic type word to underscore this could be the bad character. Yeah. Um, Norman Strick. Uh, basically, you see him courting the extra troubled kid in the neighborhood. Um, and that's Dexter, the next door neighbor who is living with his grandparents and his grandfather's Burt Remsen, which who's a great, wonderful to see Burt Remsen. Totally. Um, but he's the extra troubled kid. Uh and uh we see him briefly like uh, the Norman character approaching him. And then when it's Halloween, uh this kid shows up dressed as Hitler. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the next door neighbor shows up dressed as Hitler, and it's like, no, it's just an outfit. And our narrator, Jack, he apparently knows enough to know, like, this is fucked up, this isn't right at all. Right. The awareness of Jack is very confusing and a little, a little like underbaked in some spots. It's not, I don't know, but but that said, again, the, the drift of this movie is such that, you know, there's a love interest character, a young Reese Witherspoon, doing yes. her standard, like, you know, here I am looking at you, here I am grinning at you, like her standard facial acting thing. Yep. Um, that, you know, it, it's effective. It, this is a movie that is patterned and routine enough that during like a little bit of a, a, a of a of um a high point where he's kissed he's kissed the girl he's interested in as clumsy as the jack character is, our lead character that it's it's so patterned that it plays when a man loves a woman after that, okay? Yeah. <laughs> which, which I, I, I literally like cocked my head like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, again, mm-hmm. I'm the one who's critical of this because when this this phenomenon of movies happened, I, I didn't see My Girl. I've never seen The Sandlot. I might uh-huh. even appreciate it now. But at the same time, when it came out, I had zero interest. Right, And it's like... But I, I basically said, really? When I met, really? Like I was, yeah. having the, I was having the flashbacks to the point at which I stopped watching The Wonder Years because it came – it was way too sugar-coated for me. Even right. the dramatic part seemed sugar-coated to me. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but this movie will do things like that and then throw the monkey wrench in, into it where like, oh, yeah, by the way, the creepy guy from across the street – Wants to shake your hand because he, he wants to shake Danny Vito's hand as, hey, we're two white men and so forth. It, it does throw a few curveballs into it. And, uh, you know, it's a movie that does have that love interest thing, but it doesn't become fucking My Girl. It yeah. drops the love interest just as it might happen for, like, a preteen who's drifting from one thing to another, who has an overdeveloped sense of responsibility for his brother because he's dealing with his dad, and he's still sitting with all these flashbacks that we get to see of Andrea Marcovici, who played his mother, and how even things weren't perfect between them. And and, and I have a lot of problems with the voiceover and, and, and a lot of the things that, like the uh, the jack character uh, says cuz it's like well, how does he know so much how is he how like right. it seems contemporary but he seems insanely at times insanely like more aware right uh, but all that happening there's still
0: enough with this movie that does kind of work yeah i i fu- i fully agree with that assessment and and i will be the first one to say that i think i had um a slightly higher um, remembrance um, or reverence for it before revisiting it. It mm. has lessened, I will say, because it's much easier to cite out the unevenness of this film. Um, but that being said, there is a lot of great stuff. I think that the coming-of-age angle works, and I think that this film would have really probably had a much longer, um, I, I suppose, longevity in people's minds if it did just kind of deal exclusively with the fact that this was a single father now trying to raise his two boys to the best that he could given the circumstances Hmm. that enough would have been unusual and different because that's not something that we've seen at least until you know at this point in time within a coming of age film you know in this you know Hmm. in this manner but then you do throw in something as sort of jarring as um the neighbor that is uh you know a neo-Nazi to one degree or another, and it takes on a completely different dimension. And I I have to kind of mention this because I don't know um for sure, and, and I want to go into this history a little bit um about you know probably why we're seeing things that we both can cite as really working, and then other things that don't really seem like they do. And there's probably good reason for that. So. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, uh, principal photography on the film wrapped in the summer of 91, but post-production lasted for well over a year, which is which is wildly long for a film of this nature. Um, the reasons for that being that the filmmakers w- decided that they wanted to film even more material with Danny DeVito, which... At that point, DeVito's schedule was becoming really busy because if you recall, 1992 was the year that Batman Returns came out. And another funny thing is that when you do watch this film, knowing that it was shot in 91... And at the moment where he's doing his bits um, as Al Gorey, the horror host thing, you hear a lot of the penguin voice in his thing. So I I almost feel like Jack the Bear is almost like a little bit of a training ground for him because a lot of the voice and like the snicker that he gives in that character is it's identical to what would be in um, Batman Returns in his in his penguin performance. I want to get um, back to DeVito's body of work because my perspective is different. Yes. But on, go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so his busy schedule kept um, really the film from being complete. But that adds, um, you know, a, a very interesting dimension too, where the film as it is right now, you seem like, well, there could there should only be more of that stuff in there so it it kind of boggles the mind that like well what did they have when they wrapped if they felt that there was less devito material than this then like what did they have that you know then this film would have been truly half-baked in my opinion i think they might
1: have realized i think they might have realized that devito really carries the movie and they were kind of in trouble just to hazard a guess i didn't find much research i didn't find i didn't really look as much for the for the background of this i think they realized the thing that's plainly clear is that Devito carries the movie and is the strongest lead, even though he's not the lead of the movie.
0: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, on top of that, with you know, with his schedule really, you know, uh, you know, not allowing the film to kind of get get the pickup shots and material that they needed. Uh, finally, the director, Marshall Hershkovitz, and the producer, Bruce Gilbert, clashed in the editing room, but they ultimately resolved their differences to work together. Finally, DeVito's additional scenes were locked in July of 92, but at that point, the studio, which was 20th Century Fox, had filled their Christmas slot for the year, so the film got pushed until April of 93, a really long and windy road for a pretty small-scale and intimate hmm. um, you know, drama, but um it's interesting to me because as we said this character of norman strick is a very peculiar one and feels considering what half of this movie is and it rests solely on the relationship of the devito character and his sons when you throw this thing in and it it does make sense it's not like it's out of thin air especially when we're talking about those themes of monsters real and imagined the norman strict character is there but you know it's important for people to remember too that um this film was scripted by steven zalian now mm-hmm. zalian although he had a very that he has um, a very modest output in comparison to other screenwriters in Hollywood. It's important to remind people that Zalian has worked with some of the greatest filmmakers of all time, including Spielberg, Ridley Scott, Scorsese, Sidney Pollock, and David Fincher. I wouldn't you, call it modest at all, but you're right. Yeah, he, I'm talking wise. about Go just on, the body yeah. of work. I, sure. I believe he's got less than 20 screen credits to his name. So Zalian kicked his career off um, with uh, by writing, I think, one of uh, a favorite of yours, um the falcon and the snowman from 85 one. uh he would he would follow that up in 88 with awakenings um 1993 being a really banner year for him where he marked his directorial debut with searching for bobby Fischer, and also won an academy award for scripting a little film called schindler's list for spielberg um you know Leading on from that, he would do things like a civil action in 98. Which he, he directed worked... that also, right? He did direct that, the Travolta mm-hmm. vehicle, yeah. Uh, he would work with Ridley Scott on Hannibal, uh, Scorsese with Gangs of New York, Sidney Pollack's film The Interpreter. He would reteam with Ridley Scott uh, in 2007 for American Gangster. He would script uh, the Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill star Moneyball, as well as David Fincher's the G- The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And most recently, um, he wrote uh, the HBO miniseries The Night Of, uh, as well as uh, Scorsese's um, The Irishman in 2019. Now, I said modest output, and I meant that almost exclusively. Numbers-wise. Numbers-wise. There is nothing modest about his achievements as, you know, uh, the, the body of work speaks for itself. But in addition to all of all of this stuff, Zallion is one of the most esteemed script doctors in the industry, having contributed to countless projects completely under the radar and totally uncredited. He worked on things like Patriot Games, Patriot Games, Crimson Tide. Twister, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down and Road to Perdition. So, yeah, again, the modest is totally in numbers with <laughs> present appearances because his output is anything but that. Now, the reason that I bring all of this up um just is, you know, really proving to show what a talented uh script writer he is. So, I can only surmise that the inclusion of the Norman Strick character had to have been some connection Rooted almost entirely to the book where he, that character has to be in the book and they and maybe the makers of the film felt that it was so important within the context of the book that if you eliminated him, it would be different because I can't mm. imagine that a screenwriter as sharp and talented as Zalian would conceive that on his own. I just can't see it because it just feels too shaky. I feel like Zalian is so efficient that he would know and recognize that the that the connection with the DeVito character and the sons is strong enough on its own but that's just but my opinion.
1: but, but Zalian of course uh was it was the beginning of it was a, still still I mean 10 years but still relatively mm-hmm. early in his career yeah. um and I'm sure Herskovitz was a much had a much more cloud at the time I I think that's really interesting what you said because I think the idea of compromise, uh, the idea that the two of them compromised probably explains a lot of... It's not a staccato uh, vibe to this movie, but it's a little... It's weirdly heavy-handed in spots, but I think... I can see how if the two of them are forced to... You know, decided to compromise, there's a bunch of things that kind of fluctuate in tone. But I don't know. You know, to me... uh, you, you, before we started recording, we were talking about um, Siskel and Ebert. You know, uh, Ebert liked this movie a lot, gave it a thumbs up. Uh, Siskel gave it a thumbs down, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. I think, I think this movie is very ambitious and I think it did pull it off, but it did so narrowly because it relies on a lot of heavy-handed symbolism. Like, I mean tons of fucking symbolism in this yeah. movie. Uh, yes. You know, how do where do we even begin? Um the uh the turmoil begins one day when the construction the construction crew, crew shows up and things start to change and there's even a And scene nobody where
0: Re- knows why they're there. Yeah the, 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 whole Re-
1: street the Reese has- Witherspoon character is like you know, what happened? no one knows. They just showed up one day. Uh, uh so they have this suburban idyllic home and 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 there's this great repartee, which I think really feels right uh about all the kids in the neighborhood. They spend all this time in the bushes surveilling other people, just like, you know. Kids. That was the element where I'm like, I see what Mike sees in this movie. Yeah, like, totally. Like I understand even if nobody is ringing and running, uh, uh, you know, at someone's house, I understand right. what, <laughs> you know, what appealed to you with that. And I think that works quite well. And it is made clear to us this, you know, these kids just moved there. And it's actually said to us in the voiceover that they have to learn the neighborhood. They have right. to learn the way the neighborhood works as kids. And a lot of things in this movie seem to flow from one thing to another with the attention span appropriate for a kid roughly the age of what Jack is. But the, the, the symbolism is like, OK, so the, there's a construction that's brand new up front. There's a suburban idyllic house in the middle uh, on this street with all these other houses and you get all the interplay. Art LeFleur may- plays one of the neighbors – uh, yeah. So and he's the angry neighbor, and he's next to the Norman Strick character. But behind the house is an alley that's full of wild dogs. So there's yeah. this ever-present like danger, and we learn that there's already a trope of monsters that's kind of thrown at us from the beginning for almost no – like it's almost like a little too much yeah. where he actually says – and it's a kid's voice again – we don't know if this is Richard Dreyfus talking about something that happened in his childhood like Stand By Me. Right. This is a kid's voice. This is, the, this is the Robert Steinmiller, Robert J. Steinmiller Jr. voice. So it's like, is this contemporary? Is it the next year perhaps? Um, but he, he knows so much and he repeats things that his father said in such a sagely way that's a little confusing. But he starts off with the idea of my dad's on TV. He's the horror movie host. And again – we open up right to classic universal monster movies. And again, I'm like, this is Mike. This is exactly the kind of thing. And it's, and it's cozy at that point. But the idea that there's a constant fear, whether it's monsters, whether it's something more psychological, this alley of wild dogs, which I, it's not totally ridiculous. I've heard of that. That does happen in certain cities where you do have like pack of wild, you know, a feral animals. Um, but it's behind the house, and it's and it's a constant threat. And there's even a scene where a very angry uh, um, Jack uh, punishes his brother by putting his brother really close to the wild dogs, you yeah. know, at the fence and so forth. It's it, it relies on a lot of things that are really not subtle in trying to drive a point home. But at the same time, the texture is right. Like, one of the things I loved about this movie, really loved about this movie, because... It's still close enough to what is, for me, a kind of golden, like, period, like, say, 87 to 92, roughly, is the set design. Yeah. Like, the set design, like, there's this period of time, it's so far gone at this point, blame it on technology, interior design uh, uh, trends or whatnot, but there's this period of time a very busy, uh, busy, cluttered... Set design, nooks and crannies set design, like the houses with the with the with the uh, the kitchens and all the stuff in it. And it's, it's a very in, lived in quality. But it's like, I mean, you see it even in movies like, um You see it in movies throughout the 80s and whatnot, where it's like there's details. I mean, yes, okay, fine. I have ADD. It's a very ADD thing to say. But I love that quality that they built into really adding a lot of stuff, but a lot of texture into these sets. The internal – like the way the house looks inside is incredibly lyrical to me. It feels right. It feels – it feels accurate without being like heavy-handed, even down to like silly shit. Like there's a RatFink poster above the stove right, at one right. point where Danny DeVito is cooking, and it's like, yeah, that's pretty cool. He's like yeah. the cool dad. He thinks RatFink is cool. Right. So things like that kind of work for me, even though occasion, even though occasionally I'm like, this is a you know, it's a little too much in spots.
0: Yeah. No, to- totally, and I, yeah, that there is that heavy-handedness too, and I and and I, I think that the narration certainly does more harm than it does good because it 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 leaves you more with a puzzling feeling, or they're just kind of citing the obvious, uh, you know, or or they're just they're they're not giving the audience enough credit as if like we couldn't you know figure out we don't need the character to explain the feelings that the characters are going through or what's, you know, like a lot of it speaks for itself. So I don't know why they felt the need to inject, um, this narration, um, as often as they do. But again, I think that's the wonder years effect, like I mentioned before. Um, but, uh, yeah. So there's, uh, at this point, you know, as we've established now, the Sinise character is, um, a disturbed individual, uh, and when he comes to um DeVito's house hoping that, you know, uh there'll be Chums because they're both white uh, and and Devito isn't having it after Sunise makes some pretty derogatory um, uh, mentions of Jewish people and African American yeah. people. Uh, they know where they stand and uh, we jump uh, slightly ahead um, to Halloween where the neighbor, one of the other neighborhood kids, as you mentioned, Dexter. Um, comes to the house in a Nazi uniform, uh, which the Jack character. <laughs> I think is... he's dressed. Does he have a mustache? I feel like he is dressed as Hitler. I can't, I can't remember a mustache, but he certainly <laughs> has got the the full on Nazi uniform in in you know in red rain boots, and uh, Jack knows well enough that what he's seeing is not is not right. Uh, and then after he leaves um, the porch, uh, Jack's porch. Uh, Strick uh, is in the background there. So obviously the, the creepy neighbor put the Dexter kid up to it, um, to kind of drive home his point, um, Mm -hmm. of, of how serious his convictions are. Um, and then at some point, uh, again, kind of going through this, this, what seems at times a a bit unexpected and I guess kind of driving home, uh, the point, you know, this theme of monsters is, uh. The youngest son, Dylan, is abducted by the Norman character, which sends you know the 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 whole household um into uh, you know just a whole other you know tornado tornado of turmoil, uh, so to speak. Um, so it it gets at that point it gets very bleak. I would think it gets it gets a little depressing. Uh, what happened? Um, But I I do because you brought this up and I think it's important because the filmmakers, they 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 did this stuff intentionally with this Dexter character. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's so it's so interesting to me why they did it. And I guess in the beginning um, there is means for it, uh, as we've established this Dexter character lives with his grandparents because both of his parents have split on him so the kid has already had um you know sort of a rough of rough life where he has grandparents elderly grandparents that are taking care of him um and then at some point uh his grandmother passes away so now he's dealt with another emotional blow and then the neighborhood kids it seems to suggest that this is um you know not so much to the Leary boys but to the neighborhood kids it seems to be this first sort of awkward um introduction to death it's somebody on their block who they've known for a quite a long time has now passed so it's sort of this introduction to them but it's placed on this young kid dexter Mm -hmm. and then of course later on he's he becomes this wicked ploy of norman's where he puts him in this nazi uniform and sort of puts him up to trick-or-treat at the leary's household and then you know of course uh you know later on when um the abduction takes place, it kind of happens on Dexter's watch where Jack or, uh, yeah, Jack asks Dexter to watch his little brother Mm -hmm. for us for a short period of time. And it's, it's then where the abduction takes place. Um, so that's a whole other emotional weight on this kid, Dexter's shoulders. And then, um, I know I'm just going to jump ahead slightly without mentioning too much, but once we get, I don't know, I think, I hope you noticed it, but at the end when everything seems to be all fine and dandy, um, with the Leary family we see Dexter in the background and he is like a kid no more than six or seven and he's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> I did catch that. Yeah, which is yeah. like is he just so is this kid just so far gone now that he's just so disturbed by everything that he just like need, needs a smoke break like well, it, that's you know of the it's these funny things that, funny things of, that they yeah. did with this one character that's meant to be a supporting role but I can't help but like wonder why they paid so much attention to him i think it was i i understand well i th- i have a
1: theory on that i but i i, I actually kind of that's one of the things i kind of liked about this movie um it's interesting it, does, it, it doesn't like it doesn't try to put too much 90s into this context yeah. um it turns out at one point that um someone has poisoned and it's pretty clear if you pay attention to the movie, someone has poisoned Norman Strick's dog, yeah. and and it comes literally the night after. I think Norman the, again the chronology of this movie. It's not always clear how many days pass in between uh, incidents. It seems to come right after the attempt where Norman, you know, says, "Hey, between white men, shake my hand," and 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 Danny DeVito doesn't want to do it. Uh, John doesn't want to do it. Um, he goes over there because Jack convinces him, like, look, they've the, someone poisoned his dog. The dog was found on our property. You should you should go there and say you're sorry and that you didn't kill the dog yourself. Um Right. And 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 when when again the sec for the second time in a row, a handshake is not reciprocated between the two these two men, DeVito actually says, Look, it's not my style. I didn't kill your dog. If it was me, I would have shot him. Mm-hmm. Um it's like there's a certain edge to this that makes sense in a '70s way. It's only in spots, to be fair, yeah. in a '70s way that wasn't a '90s way. I thought I did catch that. I'm like, oh, that's that's pretty funny. But it, it's it, the the kid is now smoking. But I think the Dexter character is the more tragic one because yeah. we're trying to see. They're trying to illustrate. And maybe this is one of the more subtle things in a movie that's often not that subtle. But I think there was an effort to put things in. There was an effort at layers in this, Um, I think, because he's lost his mother and his mother dies. Oh, did you catch this? This is an interesting piece of dialogue Mm -hmm. that Jack knows that Dexter's mother, which is actually his grandmother, I think, has passed away. Because he shows up looking like an angel, looking like a girl. He says, "Yeah." Just like, what is that? Like, what is that? Like, and it and, it, and like a lot of things. In this movie, it's dropped. Like, it's not yeah. like it's just said and whatever. And it, it, it does switch to a flashback on Jack on Jack's part, and the J- Jack's flashbacks, I think, serve, you know, they serve their purpose. But um, I think because he's lost his mother, Dexter now is only under Burt Remsen, the grandfather, who we see slapping him, hitting mm-hmm. him when, when he's not behaving or he's not coming forward with the information on who took um, Dylan, who took, uh, who abducted Dylan. I think it's just this, we're, we're meant to believe that Dexter is starting to fall through the cracks because yeah. he, was, he was never that together to begin with and he was already affected by his family situation. And I think, in contrast, I think we're meant to see the contrast between the other families and the other kids in the neighborhood. And Dexter's at the bottom of uh, of that hierarchy. Like Dexter's the one who's like probably going to get in trouble sooner than the other ones. So the the and and, and yeah, not very subtly, but he, the fact that he's smoking cigarettes, which you know in the seventies were a lot easier for kids to get, right? Right. Um, not dramatically, but still, that you know. Uh, I thought that was actually like a a, a, a decent detail. Like yeah, that actually it, it,
0: from- it's interesting because like, you know, it's like they, they took the time to plant these breadcrumbs to kind of demonstrate that everybody has their issues within, you know, behind closed doors. And they're leaving these breadcrumbs to say, you know, kind of demonstrate that within but they're this not, one- They're not
1: behind closed doors because because we see everybody on the street kind of associates with each other.
0: Yeah. Even when they're not trying to. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, it's, just, it, it's it's just it's it's kind of drive subtly. I mean, if you're catching these things to kind of drive home the point that not everyone's going to leave this really unscathed, um, mm. specifically the Dexter character. Um, so, of course, uh, once the Dylan character is abducted, it, it's just trying to kind of uh, we follow um, the DeVito character and the Jack character as they're trying to carry on knowing that their son and you know brother is has been kidnapped uh we see the devito character fall more um into alcohol he's kind of uh you know he's at his his wits end with his in-laws who jack does go with um at some point uh he's at the you know devito's at the risk of losing his job now mm-hmm. um but there's some will you know, he does find a way to pull it together because he can't lose his family. It's right. become abundantly clear that he can't lose his family. And there's so much, again, like so much credit goes to DeVito on this because he, he just, he showcases so many great stuff, uh, so much great stuff in, in his performance. Um, that you know, th- if there's one thing to take away from this film, it's like see this for Devito's performance, you know, because he's yeah. always been this wonderful comedic presence, but like he really can act too. Like he, you know, he he's not he's no stranger to dramatic fare, but like this is one that I th- is a performance that has really fallen through the cracks, and I would go as far to say that it's one of his more impressive ones, yeah, um, yeah, in yeah. this arena for sure. Uh, but then you know thankfully um dylan is recovered uh he is recovered but he's not speaking anymore Mm -hmm. um strick is nowhere to be found so now uh you know we take solace uh only momentarily knowing that Dylan is okay. But with that comes, you know, there's trauma now. So this becomes a whole other layer for the family to Mm -hmm. deal with, which is again, stuff that I don't think that we necessarily were seeing in the coming of age films. There's really like three levels of, of, you know, grieving that this family has to go through and there's a lot of hardship. So I, I give this film a lot of credit for like, just when you think like this family can't go through enough, you know the filmmakers are going to subject you to that and it, it's it's really powerful although you know not all the pieces can necessarily come together as a whole for the picture but right. this is a whole other thing it's not as simple as a movie where somebody is you know saved and and the day is you know rectified there's a whole other layer of damage uh done to people's psyche and they need to deal with that um So we take solace only briefly that Dylan is returned home safe, but he's not speaking. And it becomes a little too much to handle for DeVito's character where he kind of loses it and goes across the street to Strick's house with a baseball bat. Strick apparently living with his parents who we did not Mm. know at this up until this moment where he barges in demanding to know uh, where their son is. Of course, they don't know. And then he just goes, and I think justifiably, I, it is it is kind of relieving. It, it you know it's kind of a freeing <laughs> moment where he just bashes the ever loving shit out of Strix's car.
1: Well, because it's the totem. It's it, it yeah. it's, it's, his, it's his it's his unvarnished past before he heard it again. The symbols in this movie are not lightly applied. But yes, but 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 that that is absolutely that. And you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm like. It is a curious mix of heavy-handed and realism, you know, yes. heavy-handed drama and realism. Um, and, and just to throw this out here, like it, it's so easy for us to say who are these movies made for, when there's this whole slew of these movies. It's it's the fact that at this period of time, people went to dramas, like. Yeah. People took their their families to dramas and they weren't necessarily kids movies and they weren't necessarily like, you know, superhero movies, needless to say. But dramas were still a thing, you know, mm-hmm. was a period of time when when like a major drama. I mean, I don't know how it did, but I loved it at the time as a kid, like a mm-hmm. movie like Parenthood was an yeah. interesting family story drama full of stuff that wasn't necessarily for kids. But, like, that's to me where, like, all these movies kind of fit in. Like, yeah. everyone talked about My Girl and the fact that there's a that, – that someone – a kid dies in My Girl because yeah. it had potency because it was a drama at the time. And, and I don't know. I, I guess if, if nothing else, like, I think that's kind of what I Eat Movies should be about. Like, the yeah. fact that, like, the best movies in the dramatic field – And this is not my original thinking. I'm repeating something. But nonetheless, the best movies in drama can use elements of genre, can use elements of other style of movies. And that's in many cases where some of the best movies are hidden because a lot of people at this point in time don't approach drama the same way they did in like
0: 1993. Right. Right. Um so at this point uh after this whole damage of strix motor vehicle um the the final act of the film takes on a this element feels you know it, it kind of steers the film in almost like a thriller-esque um uh point of view where uh the boys are with um their grandparents the the boys are with their grandparents and. Um, DeVito is kind of taking you know, he's at the house by himself, uh, but being away from their own father obviously has its own heartache. So Jack leaves his grandparents house, manages to steal money from his grandmother and hops a plane back to Oakland because he's worried about dad. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's at this point where dad doesn't realize that Jack's home and the lights go out in the house and Strick, who has not been found since the abduction, has been on the run. Returns to the block and <laughs> yeah. and and breaks in to Leary's house. Um, to uh, you know, one can imagine only to kill him. Uh, And this is where it gets a little bit of a thriller, because now obviously Jack and his dad are confronted in this uh, dark house with um, a lunatic who obviously is out for blood now. Um, And I guess, you know, uh, this is again playing into the whole idea of monsters confronting monsters and whatnot. But that doesn't really come. They don't really stick the landing, I don't think, because obviously I I don't think so much um because you know we're we see jack uh trying to run away from this guy and i'm not saying that the the movie the point would have been driven if if jack would have like toasted strick if he got that baseball bat and just took him out but instead it kind of ends with um He's not so much confronting. I mean, he's a child, and he responds in a very childlike way. He's crying, he's screaming for his father. They're uh, they're on a tree limb together, and uh, Strick loses his balance and falls in onto the other side of the fence where the wild dogs are, and is killed, uh, due to that. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, uh, where, you know, so much of this film is about confronting monsters, whether they be the monsters inside ourselves or, you know, out there in the real world. So that ending is sort of peculiar to me because it doesn't really, it doesn't really do much or say too much about what Jack learned or or like, you know, what was expected for his character arc at that moment. Um I just feel like that ending feels a little silly, the whole idea of the strict character coming. But that, back. It, but that isn't, it, isn't the ending though. It isn't the ending, but it's supposed to be like this payoff moment where you know the, the monster has been defeated but right. i don't know I, I just it doesn't feel that it just it, it i i kind of felt like on paper they probably had the idea of like this is the moment where this is going to happen and this is the sort of emotion that we want to f- people to feel but i don't like think it was to, like they had it, to close that subplot basically yeah like they had to close that because it would have seemed like silly if they didn't but i You know, I strongly argue that it feels silly that Strick would come back. Why would he come back? You know what I mean? Like, like he let Dylan go, obviously, or he really just let him to hopefully die on his own, you know, in the woods or whatnot. But it just it just seems a little too like Hollywood and not in the good way. (laughs) Yeah, my drift.
1: I know I see that I see that I, I mean I can understand someone tr- needing resolution on that whole story because like the guy kidnaps the kid and then just disappears and you know what movie would it be if that never you know like it makes sure. more sense to me that that the Reese Witherspoon character disappears than yeah. it does that the Norman Strick character disappears but um yeah no i I hear that and i I, I think I think there's a you know again it's a little bit it shows its ambition in a way that is occasionally like a little tough, a little yeah. tough to watch. But I, I don't know, you know, uh, going back to what you're saying about, about the whole idea of like the monologue that's not necessarily working. Maybe the best part of the movie, I don't know. You know, like I think that there is some buildup in this that does work. Maybe the best part of the movie uh, is, is the, the closing, which is no voiceover. Mm-hmm. Uh, no voiceover. And it's, and it's, um, it's John and the two boys still struggling with, uh, with, um, with Dylan not speaking, uh, after this traumatic, after yet another traumatic event in his life. Right. Um, uh, cause at the beginning of the movie, the kid is actually asking where his mom is, you know, like, so right. clearly he's not. He's not a—he's uh, not totally aware of what's what has happened to his mother, having been killed, having died in a car accident, or what have you. Um, I do want to say uh, again, like I, I think this movie did pull it off, but it really seemed close at some points. Yeah, I—I I, I think this is just Skin of its teeth. Ha- yeah, not to hammer home the dramatic thing too much. This is. A, there's this a tearjerker scene at the end of this movie, and it worked for me, okay? Like, it was affecting. Um, and uh, I do want to say a couple things. Um, again, I think this speaks to our generational divide again, um, to hammer on that. Uh, talking about Danny DeVito, um, for me— like, I definitely saw Batman Returns, and I, I remember, like, the hype with Batman, the 89 yeah. Batman and, and so forth. Oh, and man. I was real, I was relatively into that, you know, the Bat-dance and the Batman T-shirts being ubiquitous and, and so forth. Uh, but um, just looking at DeVito's ca- career, you know, I have two movies uh, – there, there's stuff in between, I think. But there's two movies that really stick out to me uh, for two very different reasons – To me, maybe the best thing he ever did, maybe, uh, is The War of the Roses in '89. Um, That's a great movie, and it has aged super well, and Danny DeVito directed it on top of that. But I look at that movie from '89, uh, and the other one, for a totally different reason, is Other People's Money, which I haven't gone Mm. back to in some time. Um, Here's the digression. Uh, I was walking home from school in 1990 or I guess 91. Uh, and I walked, I was about to walk over this bridge over a highway, uh, that I walked over all the time and there was a fucking film crew there down the exit ramp. Okay. And this just so happens to be at the border of New York and Connecticut. And, uh, I diverted because I'm like, well, what is going on here? This is the middle of the suburbs, and there people don't film movies here. What they had done is, uh, and this is the the New York side of the border, they had constructed a sign that said, I think it was well, it was either welcome to New Hampshire or welcome to uh, Vermont. Okay, and mm-hmm. it deliberately obscured the welcome to Connecticut sign. That was the real sign. Okay. There's uh-huh. a whole f- film crew there. And me, this annoying kid with a backpack. Who's like, well, you what's going on. And I actually asked somebody in this crew. And it turns out this is like an interstitial, like 20, like five second, 10 second part of this movie. Uh, I'm like, what, is, what are you guys shooting? What is this? What is this? And he's like, uh, and he goes, it's a Danny DeVito movie. I'm like, uh, okay. All right, fine. Uh-huh. Um, and it was literally a scene of a car driving up this, driving up the, uh, going northbound on this highway, and then the point of view watch, you know, hits the, follows the car until the car passes, and you see the sign after the car passes that says "Welcome to New Hampshire." Okay, uh-huh. uh, that that's deliberately blocking on an active normal highway. It's not like they shut down <laughs> this highway. It's just like one car limousine, I think it was. Uh huh. And in the middle of all this – and I'm just watching this because I'm like, I've never seen anyone shoot a fucking movie before. Uh, I, you yeah. know, I'm twelve, I'm like 12 years old. Uh, in the middle of this, um, I think it was like a Chevy Nova, OK? In the middle, like 10, 15 feet from where the cameras were set up on the end of this ramp, all right, uh-huh. this woman – pulls over in the middle of like from the from the busy lane of the highway right like like maybe again 15 feet away from the cameras it's this older black woman gets out of like a chevy i guess it's like a like a 70s car like a chevy nova or something she gets out yeah. she looks at them. And she goes this is vermont <laughs> she actually <laughs> didn't know how far she had driven and i'm like i got to see that and then they actually shot like, 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 is this New Hampshire? Like, what did I do? Like, I Where was am I? Like, I, so to say everyone else on the road was like, okay, so it's Connecticut. Fine. They're filming some shit, whatever. This woman believed the sign. That's <laughs> and, great. And, and almost drove like, so like much closer to like the film <laughs> crew than would have made sense. But, um, and then, then I'm like, wow, that was amazing. And then they do the shot and I'm like, it's just a shot of a limousine driving past and they were done. And then I just got wow. off my. And that was other people's money, um, huh. which I That's hadn't seen crazy. in a while. But it's like to see something like that walking home from school only happened to me once. And you can see why I remember it. Yeah. So then then Batman returns, then Hoffa, which he directed. Then um, And then he started, you know, 93. The other movies in 93 for DeVito are voice acting roles, which I thought was yeah. interesting, where he mm-hmm. does uh, Last Action Hero and Look Who's Talking Now.
0: Yeah, another yeah.
1: phenomenon of that period that I'm not revisiting the Look Who's Talking movies. I love. Of them. Co- <laughs> yeah. Well, of course yeah. I would. Yeah, they were easy to dismiss at that at that point. Yeah. For me. Um, and then of course, um, ninety five get shorty. Uh, yeah. So, um, to me, like, this is still in like a big period for DeVito, but like you know it was thinning out. You know there yeah. was get shorty, and then a couple years later, uh, you know I, I I like certain other things, but to me like. Again, The War of the Roses is really maybe, maybe, maybe we need to cover that one cuz I I think The War of the Roses is, yeah. a, is a really great film. Sure. Um I want to mention a couple of the other things that were playing at the time. Uh it, is that good? It's good for you. Yeah. Um just looking at some of the other things, uh again, like a pretty decent spectrum. Uh The Crush was playing at the time. Uh uh-huh. The Un- Unforgiven, um probably the first western that really landed for me. Uh Teenage Mutant Ninja Tur- Turtles the 3 was saw out. that in theaters. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: bore, a movie called Born Yesterday that I do not remember. Uh, definitely the movie that everyone was talking about at the time, The Crying Game, Neil mm-hmm. Jordan. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I like The Crying Game, but I really like um, – and I've just lost the name of it uh, – the Bob Hoskins movie he made before it. Anyway, uh, I can't place it, but it's fantastic. Uh, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn from Disney – um cop and a half Ah uh-huh,
0: Bert uh, yeah uh yeah um that was directed by Henry Winkler I believe well I, you know <laughs> well <laughs> they can't
1: all be winners um the, the, uh okay so a point of no return which another one I probably need to see again I don't remember very well indecent proposal as you said the sandlot falling down El mm. Mariachi Ah, uh, Scent of a Woman, which I can no longer think of at all without thinking of Gilbert Gottfried, because he does an impression of Hervey Villachez doing Al Pacino's lines from Scent of a Woman. That's like <laughs> his go-to Hervé Villachez. Uh, <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried has a thing That's for dwarf for, 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 for little people. What can I say? That's wonderful. C- CB4, uh, since you did mention a certain a certain news article thing that just happened. C B four. Uh, featuring MC Gusto. uh, Hear no evil alive. Another one that was a real shocker at the time. Yeah. The, uh,
0: yeah.
1: Late crash cannibalism movie.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, but boiling point, which is really good. It's a Jared, Ger- Gerald, Gerald Petovich script. The no. same guy. He's the same guy who, um, who worked with uh Friedkin for to live and die in LA and the two Friedkin, um, uh, TV movies, the action TV movies he made. Oh, wow. uh, that is a that. Brutal Boiling Point is a hard is a really good strong like cop movie. Uh, nice. I really, I really dug that one. A crime movie anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I I I think this. Um, I think this did not hold up as well for you. And uh, the more I think about it, the more I like some of the quirks of Jack the Bear. But um, yeah. there was definitely some flags that the teenage dino was like no no i'm not not going for that shit but all in
0: all um i think they kind of pulled this one out of the fire yeah i mean like you know i I certainly don't disagree with that um and you know i I think that like i held this up uh, slightly higher on a pedestal not by much so revisiting it um it's it definitely uh you know my experience with it hasn't in you know lessened that much for sure. I just think that there are certainly some things that are uneven, all of which that we've talked about here. Um Roger Ebert, I know you talked about the Siskel mm-hmm. and Ebert review on their uh, show but he did do a written review uh, he he gave the film 3 stars which is really kind and he went on to say quote Jack the Bear is not an, order, an ordinary movie and I never have had the and I never had the feeling I knew what would happen next the characters are clearly seen and despite the bizarre elements there's always a feeling that Devito and the two young boys make up a real family if the focus had stayed there the movie would have been better I think The addition of Norman and all of his demented activities is a dead end, a distraction that keeps this from being a much better film. I think I'm going to have to fully and wholeheartedly agree with Ebert on that. I understand um, the themes and everything that they wanted to accomplish with Strick, but it just comes off a little hammy and heavy handed. I think that the root of this film should have been um from beginning to end the family and i get it like you know like they they could definitely argue that it is and always has been but throwing in the strict thing just kind of adds like a slightly goofier um trauma to something that could have been You know, even better, just the fact that they, you know, he's a single father grieving after a marriage that was less than perfect to begin with. But now he's dealt with a responsibility that he has two boys that he has to raise. Um, So, you know, like like you said, this there's a lot of great stuff in this film. And I think that it's very ambitious at times and it does go for it um, definitely. And just, you know, just barely makes it. But, you know, what it does do really well is that again it kind of showcases devito doing a really wonderful performance and again I'm, I'm glad that you talked about it too the production design is really wonderful in this one it's that real lived in sort of quality that um you can tell a production designer really, you know, enjoyed getting into the minutiae of mm-hmm. these people's lives and stuff. And that does not go on scene with viewers like you and me and I'm sure people that listen to us. So I think that people are going to take a lot from that. So, again, didn't hold up at quite as strongly as I remembered. I think that it is a decent enough film and one that I think makes pretty good, um, you know, statements on growing up. Loss and grief. So I think it does all of those uh, pretty well.
1: I want to throw a quick uh, little bit. Uh, just the um, Marshall Fine, uh, film uh, critic. He actually made a good point. I think again, um, it's Devito's movie, but it's he's not the lead. Uh, but Stein, he basically said Stein Miller is a shade too actorish, and that really resonated with me. I think yeah. it's it's very telling. I don't think Stein Miller's a bad actor, but it says a lot that he I think he did a couple movies in 94 and then was not heard of movie or TV wise until like the 2000s. He might have done some uh, some composing and maybe a little producing later in the 2000s. But I think he did mostly stage, which makes a bit more sense. He's given a lot of work to do here. And the way in which he does it makes me wonder if the casting could have been better with somebody else. But like you said, this is a period of time, you know, you got Reese Witherspoon, you got all these other people um, who became established actors doing their first child roles at this period of time. So it's it's kind of kind of common. It's kind of makes sense for that period of time. Uh, Herskovitz also did, of course, the so-called so my so-called life, which is pretty, pretty important series for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, there's, there's some really good supporting cast. I can't not mention Julia Louis-Dreyfus in this movie. Yeah, what a guess, right? As Peggy, um, the, uh, one of the, um, um, assistants or producers, I guess, on the show, uh, on, uh, um, DeVito's, um, horror TV show, which has so much charm to it. There's so many little bits. If you like that kind of thing where he's like, where she says, oh, I, you know, I found, uh, uh, I found this movie uh, to, to DeVito and DeVito said, like, yeah, we'll play that on Friday with Dr. Sardonicus. Like, it has, I loved
0: all of that. Yeah. It
1: has a lot of that like texture that's – well, it's written well enough that people will understand this is a, a, a horror show, midnight horror show host for regular TV of the time. It's, um, it's very – it's got a little bit of that charm of something like say matinee that was popular at that time where they yeah. were like thinking about that period uh, of horror and and, and and genre film um glowingly uh I do want to quickly I mentioned Art LaFleur uh who I like a lot a uh, good character actor I confuse him often because he looks a lot like Bo Star. Um, yes Mike Starr's brother but Art LaFleur is his own is his own um his own thing of course and uh his wife he's Mr. Fesslinger his wife is played by Lee Garlington who um I think is uh I want to say she's underrated. She's also kind of a chameleon actor, uh, because what like a year before I think in uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, maybe one of the best movies of the '90s for me, "Sneakers." She yeah. plays she plays a um, a like uh, foreign or Czech or Russian uh, uh, visiting doctor with a heavy accent who seduces um, one of the characters. She he seduces a. Uh, can't the I can't remember, the, I, I can't remember who, who who the actor is but anyway she plays mrs. Fesslinger in it and she's just it's nice to see it's one of those people it's nice to see in this there is some good totally. supporting supporting uh, roles there's some uh, some some good little if you if you have an eye for some of the minutia for some of the stuff in the nooks and crannies um like I like how as much as uh, we're meant to see the grandparents, who live in a much more affluent Los Angeles compared with this, you know, more middle class uh, Oakland where, where the family lives. Um, we're meant to not like them to some degree. And Jack doesn't really like them. And there's scenes mm-hmm. with him playing chess with his grandfather. But they make the point that these th- th- that the grandparents were named in the blacklist. You know, yeah. like like that was a nice little like, oh, wow, you know, and, and there's, yep. you know, there's a little bit of that information there there's a, there's an effort to kind of flesh out a certain amount of things that, again, a movie that isn't trying as hard as this one is probably wouldn't bother. And right. um, and those, you know, again, I've watched this one point five times, uh, but still a lot of those things kind of stuck with me. And and yeah. and you know I think this one I think this one's a keeper, um, but as we as 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 we hear it, I eat movies. Always say it's like flawed movies are sometimes the most interesting ones, and this one is far. It's far from perfect, but uh, if you're going in expecting a great Danny DeVito performance, a man as you said, I totally agree with you. A man whose range I think is uh, underrated. Um, you're going to get a hell of a good DeVito performance here
0: yeah awesome well i am very glad that you took to it uh this was um you know we did have another one in store that I was going to suggest. And we had a little bit of a, a, a little bit of an internal miscommunication, but that one will still be on the docket uh, for next season, I believe. But um, yeah, I'm happy that uh, we did go with this one and that you did take to it as much as you did. So yeah, really happy that you got to might um, be a little tricky to find. I want to it thank... is out of print on DVD now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I want to thank uh, one of our guys who we thank every episode, but Mr. Ben Reiser for finding a um, <clears throat> somewhat less than a uh, legal way of seeing this movie. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely think uh, I definitely I definitely got more. I, I got a good more a good dose out of this than I thought I was going to, especially doing my notes and being like, you know, what's what's going on here? Well, what, what is this
0: movie? But, right. OK, well, I'm at, uh, awesome. Awesome. Very happy that I could serve you with something uh worthy, worthy of munching yeah. on. So, uh yeah. Oh, Mer- wait, 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 wait. Waiting. Lest lest we forget, one of the most charming parts of the movie
1: is the dinner.
0: The dinner, of course, the goulash the, dinner, the
1: Hungarian goulash. Uh, yeah. I I love you don't eat meat anymore, but still, I love I love goulash, and I refuse to spell it any other way but the German way, even though it's Hungarian mm-hmm. with an S C H. But yes, there's a really charming dinner scene where um, where Karen, the Reese Witherspoon character, is invited over for dinner for jack for, for john's uh famous hungarian goulash which yeah. I, I i thought was you know which they're eating of course with with like egg noodles or something yeah uh, which, which was which is um one of the more like you know peggy is there because J- john says uh maybe we should invite someone else so she, so 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 karen you know this young girl isn't the only girl there and so yeah. peggy's there and it, it, it is the one like it is the one, like, pseudo-familial setting of, like, everybody at the table and whatnot that shows a little bit of the – again, the range of what this family could be in a different setting and so yeah. forth. That, and also like, f- they get to eat goulash.
0: Goulash, of course. I mean, who are we if we don't mention – a goulash scene. What what kind of podcast would we be? Damn it. Um, but yeah, thank you for mentioning that because that that is a, probably the most charming scene in the film. And I feel like that's also a moment where the film really like captures its best rhythm, too. Yeah. Honestly, it's great stuff. Um, but again, so happy you took uh, to Jack the Bear. So if you guys can hunt it down, find that out of print DVD or other means to see it uh please do and uh let us know what you think in the meantime dino can you tell the good people where they can find i eat movies
1: we are i eat movies podcast on facebook and instagram please like this podcast uh on whatever podcatcher you're using uh thank you as always to all of our fans and the people who um remind us that uh we've gone a few weeks without an episode
0: yeah. And uh, and um, eat more movies uh, by yes. all means
1: eat more movies.
0: Well, yeah, I'm going to eat some more movies and then I'm going to eat some uh, some excedrin because uh, uh, unbeknownst to our audience until now, I've, I've been nursing myself in migraines since we yeah, started
1: this episode. He decides to podcast with me because he can blame the migraine on me, of course. It's yeah. a sound of, it's the sound of my <laughs> voice that does it. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh my dominant heron, everywhere in between. And uh and by the way, today is a trans recognition day. So happy. It. It, 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 ha- happy trans recognition day to everyone who is trans, uh they, them, etc. And um we'll see you next time on I eat Movies. Indeed, we will. Thanks so much, man. Thank you.